I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. This is part one of my conversation with artist, producer, remixer, publisher, co-founder of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast, and my very good friend, Danny D, where we talk about our respective journeys. Just like with my other guests, we get into why we ended up in the music business, but first, we talked about why we started this podcast. It's from the aftermath of you getting myself and my business partner, Tim Blacksmith, to do an interview with music business worldwide. You know, we've, we've been going for many a year, about 21 years, maybe even 22 years, but we've never really done any form of publicity because it's just not our thing. Our thing was just to get on and, and do it. Let, let, your, let the work do the talking. But you were on our case that we, you know, we need to be seen, we need to be seen. And eventually we said yes. Truly, it was the aftermath of doing it and seeing people's response to, to the article. Number one, it was how much I personally enjoyed actually doing the interview, just realizing how much we'd done. Because when you don't stop and think about it, I suppose it just passes you by. But you actually asking questions about how we started, et cetera, et cetera, and everything that we'd achieved. Um, the response from, from people, and, and even people who know us, was quite overwhelming. And it really spoke volumes that people like ourselves who have been in it and have become or have been seen to be successful speak and, and tell our stories, the good, bad and the ugly, because I've never really heard it before. That's what sparked it. And I, and I picked up the phone and I, and I called you and like, we got to do this. And, and here we are. I'm a real believer in things happening for a reason at a particular time. And the interview in Music Business Worldwide dropped just around the time of the murder of George Floyd, Blackout Tuesday. And suddenly the conversation was, it's always been a prescient one, but was it, but it was even more so. It was national and there was a real desire for us to kind of, to move to, to tell those stories. I'm really glad that you pushed for us to do it. You know, we've been blessed to have some amazing guests. But this particular episode is going to be a little bit different because it's going to be your story. And for some reason, people want to know my story as well. So why the music business for you, Danny? I fell into it. I never set out to to become part of the industry. I suppose there was a, a love of music from when I was a kid. You know, there's a story I've told many a time before that my mum would tell you and would gladly tell you if she saw you in the street, just like say my name, she'll tell you the story, that as a baby, if I cried, they realised, just put on a piece of music and there'll be silence. I wasn't looking for food. Literally, the sound of music, I would go quiet um, to the point that my crib was put by the stereo. I always used to think that that was, a, was a bit of a, a, just a, a lie until my mum pulled out a picture a few years ago, and lo and behold, there's my crib right next to the stereo. <laughs> and there's a picture of me standing up in the crib. And I think it was, that's the first time I was trying to dance. It kind of caught the moment in this, in this picture. It was, it was true. 
within the family, um, music was just like a big thing. My mum and dad just loved music, so music was always on. I didn't know until a little bit later that I came from quite a musical family anyway. So on my, on my mother's side, her cousin was a guy called uh, Dr. K. Jesse, who had a, an absolute classic High Life album um, called Sitchy, Sitchy High Life. And I didn't know that until the band came to London to do some gigs and he stayed at our house. And that was like, right, okay. That was that side. On the other side of the family, my dad's cousins um, are or were the, the band Osibisa. There were many more. There was a few more um, bands in Ghana which were, were loosely connected as well, but it was, it's like, it was the real core, it was the, just the love of music within the, the household. Um, and, and it kind of just, it just drew me in. I was sucked in early, um, and I suppose via school, um, I became like the, the, local, the local DJ. I'd spend every penny I got on, on the latest vinyl that I could get my hands on. And so if it was someone's birthday, I automatically became the DJ. And literally one thing led to an, another, and I found myself in the industry, you know, because the DJing led me to a birthday party where a club owner was at. And literally I got handed this card, which I didn't take seriously. To cut a long story short, I eventually did make the, the phone call to him, went down to this spot. Um, and that spot, as you know, Adrian, is called Gulliver's Nightclub. You know what, we'll get to that in a minute because you've missed some steps out along the way. And there are people, because we know each other well, that you need to give props to. Oh, there's many. <laughs> we'll try and fit as many of those guys in as we can. But it's interesting because your story is different to mine because I never knew there was, well, I knew there was a music business, but I didn't know what the music business really entailed. And you and I clubbed in the same place, although we didn't know each other as, as in our formative years. But I remember being at a club called The Royalty in Southgate and... I was at university studying social sciences and I was going to major in law to become a lawyer. And I was there one Saturday night and this black guy bounded up onto the stage and he was, he was treated like a god. He had a bag over his shoulder and he pulled out all these great tunes. This guy was just worshipped. And I was a regular at the club, but it was one of those places where I walked in for free. I DJed there as well. I walked onto the stage and said, who's that guy? And he said, and he said that's Fred Dove. I said, what does he do? He said, well, he works for Warner Brothers and he does club promotion. And I said, what's Club Promotion? And they told me, I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. Two months later, I quit university, took a job. And for the next three or four years, the only thing I thought about was trying to get a job in the business. But growing up, like you, I mean, our household was full of music. I mean, we don't have the same musical heritage as you, Dee, but mum and dad, obviously, coming, coming from Jamaica, house that was full of Bluebeat. Sunday mornings was Jim Reeves and Ace Cannon on the record player. i got to um, jump in there. So, <laughs> so, you, so you do know why my name is Danny, right, don't you? Because regardless of whether, whether your parents came from Jamaica or mine came from, from Africa, West Africa, Jim Reeves was a constant in black people's homes. A staple. And my dad's favourite tune, Danny Boy. So guess what? Yeah. yeah. My name is Danny. <laughs> well, you know what? It's funny. When, yeah, when my mum passed a few years back, we kind of went and we cleared the house. 
and she still had the Jim Reeves albums, which I took as a reminder. But Hell yeah, yes. Jim Reeves, the old Blue Beat, obviously Soul. I mean, I went to a boys' grammar school, which was exclusively pretty much white. So there I was listening to Elton John and Pink Floyd and all these kind of prog rock bands. And in amongst that, there was black music as well. So like you and I, I mean, that we've kind of had like a kind of musical smorgasbord where we've kind of drawn our influences from over the years. Going back before you started DJing, there was... I mean, you and I were kind of avid, avid clubbers, although we didn't know each other, voracious buyers of music. But there was a really important man in your life that kind of really set you on the path. And, and I remember you saying that you, he saw something in you that really set you on the path to where you are now. I suppose in, in meeting him, I didn't realise um, the journey he was going to take me on. He and a, and a couple of others, actually. The person that you're referring to can only be Erskine Thompson. You're one of my brothers in the industry, but that was my father. Uh, my father, my, my teacher, my mentor. Before that, though, there was another guy called Andy Soika, and he's the one who really pulled me in, literally. We're talking about Northwest London, Harlesden. Um, he, had a, he had a record store called Orlia's Records in Craven Park, I would go and do the family shopping, but lo and behold, I'd end up in the in the record <laughs> store on a on a regular basis. Um, or I was always late home. But it's, he's the one who who kind of noticed something in me just from when they were playing playing tunes. So this was like the local import store. So like every Friday, Thursday, Friday, the tunes would come in, and they're just you know all DJs will show up and they're playing them. And I'm a, I'd be this kid that's in there. And but I'd be pointing out the, and I didn't realise I was doing it. But I'm just like, yeah, no, that's a tune. Oh yeah, hell yeah, you know, doing doing the usual as as we do. But he noticed that I was picking out tunes, which then went on to become like like hits. I wasn't even aware of that. But he's he's the one who kind of started like a mentorship. It was a friendship. Took me to his house, met his his wife and kid took me into his attic, which was like, what is this? The first time I'd ever seen a record, record collection like that. To me, record collections were those like 20 tunes which would buy the family stereo. No, this is, a, this is a room of thousands of pristine records. You know, you'd go and he'd just be playing tunes. And then he would, he did this thing, and I'd never knew it was like a test so you go here. Take these, take these five albums with you. Take them home, um, and bring them back. But he would tell you, they better come back in the exact same condition that I gave them to you. And so I'd, I'd take them home, I'd play them, and you'd, you soon started to realise, yo, half of these tunes that I'm loving, which I think are soul tunes or reggae tunes or whatever the source of them are these rock albums that he's giving me or like a nice shot the sheriff type thing it's like hold on hold on a minute i thought that was the original you know or you'd hear these guitar riffs which are in another in another tune and all of this was like the education of the you know how people are inspired from other sources and it, it goes on and, t- and, and it turns into um, something else. But it was a true 
teaching of genres, different genres of music completely opened my, my mind. So that would have been early 80s? Yep, very, very early 80s, yep. So whilst you were kind of rolling around in Andy's record shop, I was working in a bank in the West End. I can't, I can't, I can't even imagine you in the bank. Believe me, I couldn't imagine myself in the bank either. <laughs> I said, I left university and I had to get a job. And it was one of those things where it was, it was easy to get a job. And I got a job in a bank. And I remember being there after about three months and I went up for this staff appraisal. And I went, listen, we think you're doing really, really well. We'd like you to go on what they call at the time accelerated training because we think you could become a really good bank manager. When they said that, that was even more of a thing where I had to get out as quickly as possible. I was desperate. <laughs> I was desperate. The thought of spending my life as a bank manager for 40 years was just too much. But it took me another three years before I got my first break into the industry and then met you. But hold on. How, so how did that, how did you get that break? What happened? Well, I, I used to be a clubber like you, as I said, and I used to hang out. I used to know all those guys that DJ at the time. I mean, Pete Tong was a, was a young up and coming DJ. Jeff Young, who did the first soul show, the likes of Chris Hill and the Froggies, all those guys that were part of the soul mafia. So I was part of that set, but very into it. So I knew them really, really well. I used to DJ for an hour or certain royalty on a Saturday night. And I just, I made it my point to do whatever I, I had to do to, to get to know them, to be in the mix, be in that scene. So if it meant lifting speakers, playing tunes, driving people, I just wanted to be around it so I could soak it all up, let people see that I was a part of it. So that if an opportunity came up, I'd be the one that put whose name would be put forward. When I was working in the bank, which was Nat West Bank, a job came up at Island Records and it said Club Promotions person wanted must have driving license. And I didn't have a driving license because I just couldn't be bothered to drive. <laughs> so I had to go out and learn to drive. But then in mid-83, a job, that same job became available. And luckily, Pete Tong and a few others, Froggy and a couple of others, put my name forward. And I was lucky enough to get the job. And my first break in the business was Club Promotions at Island Records. I have to be honest, Ireland was not a place that I'd ever thought about working, only because they didn't have the best dance music. They weren't known for their, for their club music. It was Phonogram, London. Pete was doing stuff over at London. Christmas were doing stuff before you got there, A&M. But Ireland weren't. But in hindsight, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me because working there, we were able to set a template with Ashton Newton, who's still a good friend, president of Capitol Records, Julian Palmer, another good friend of mine who's now at Columbia. We set a template for one, I think, one of the most innovative dance labels of all time. But it also got me out in and around, up and down the country. And one night in, you know, as you are, you're tasked with kind of going out and playing tunes. And I rolled into this club in Down Street and there was this guy dropping some pure beats and I started over to him and I ended up talking to him and over a period of time I realised that there was something very very special about this young man unbelievably articulate knew what he wanted really personable really professional but you could just tell he had something special do you know who that was? nope it could well have been you holy shit <laughs> ah classic classic I was honestly thinking you'd say something else eh? and that was where we met that was, that was the start of our friendship and, and when was that? Seriously, we're going to really give away how old we are now, but that had to be either 83 or 84. Oof, my God. That's where our story really began. So you're, you're working at Andy Soikers. I wasn't working for Andy. 
I was literally, that was just my, my spot. You know, you, you, back then you had certain record stores. Northwest London was, you know, all ears records. If, if you were in and around the Paddington areas, it was, uh, what was that? Blue, Bluebird. Um, then if you, if you decided to venture into town, there was, there was a few more in the Golden Mile. Um, but, all ears was was my spot. You wanted your your, your imports. All ears was your spot. If you wanted your reggae, it was Jetstar across the road. Um, and there was another. There was one other store. There was a guy called Patrick, who had a, had a spot as well. Um, and he was like the in in between. Um, and then there was Hawkeye later later on. So it was a it was a real you know that area was a real hub for 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 music. But all ears was was my spot. So I wasn't actually working there. Um, but I was, <laughs> you, you'd think I was, because I think every minute, every spare minute I got, I'd be in there. Whilst DJ, DJ, and obviously you graduated uptown to Gulliver's, became a, a name there. And then it was all about trying to get your first break into the business. So, so you know how mine happened? How did it happen for you? Do you know what's funny? I wasn't looking to get into the business because I thought DJing was it. And it was... Erskine Thompson, who was next in my my story, who I also met via Gulliver's in in the main, and became a, a really good uh, good friend and mentor. But it was him who came to me one day because I didn't really even understand what you were doing. I just Adrian Sykes, I like him. Oh, he works at Ireland, right? Okay, cool. But did I actually understand what your what you were doing really meant? No, I didn't. I was totally green to the industry. There was a night at Gulliver's called Root Party Night, and there was a Root magazine. It became the biggest night in London, period. Anyone can come and tell me otherwise. At that time, this was the spot and the hottest spot to be at on a, on a Wednesday night. The doors could open at 9. At 9.15, the club is full to capacity both floors and as a DJ it was heaven because you could play the hottest tunes the most upfront tunes literally from nine o'clock it was game on it was peak night all night and the likes of yourselves would show up and are giving you know giving me tunes and I'm one of those guys if it's if, it's, if it touches me I'm playing it straight away and I'll ask you if you've got another copy and I'll cut it up and and stuff and and away, away you go. But it was Erskine who then came to me one day and says, you don't realise, but you're doing all those guys' jobs for them. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he says, yeah, come, in, come and meet me after the club. Let's go, let's go and have a coffee on the, way, on the way home. And that's when he explained to me what was, what was going on, the whole process made me understand he goes understand when you take that record and you play it and it goes off in the club the likes of adrian and we didn't say your name but the likes of yourselves and the club promotion guy shows up at the record company the next day and talks about how that tune went off and the, then then the the decisions that are then made based upon that simple fact and that was my first eye-opening um, moment into the the industry at large. I didn't necessarily have an in, but he's the one who said, you know what, I'm starting a, a, a club promotion company called 
hot licks and would you like to come and uh, come and work? And at first I was a bit, bit hesitant because I was, I was seeing, you know, for a young man, I was seeing good money from, from Gulliver's. Um, but in the end I was like, yeah, you know what? Let's give it a give it a go. It's all about it's all about music, and I could and I could continue DJing. So I took him up on it, and and we started started Hot Licks as a independent club promotion company, and uh, and very quickly we were we were in the mix of it. And I think it took us about six to six months to a year to properly get going. But then we were seriously in in the mix of it that's when you know you'd see me on the road doing all this at all the same venues as you yeah no we used to run into each other a lot and i think it was that probably around about that time i think i was a year or two into my stint at ireland and i was having some success and the label fourth and broadway that julian ashley and i were working on was incredibly successful i think that's when we kind of really began to gravitate towards each other because Post that point, we I think we spent a lot of time together. And one of the things that we talk about on the podcast, as you know, D, is that thing about people who helped you, mentors, people who were able to give you kind of some kind of solace advice, help, um, that were like-minded. If we're honest, there weren't that many of us around the business at the time. People look at the business now and it's and it's a very different it's a different colour of business when you and I were there in the early days. I mean, black guys were essentially the guys that were club promotion guys. There was never really a thought that we could do anything other than that. You know, it was interesting later on down the line, and we've obviously, we've talked to Dej Mahoney and the incredible Lincoln Elias. And I know they were the first guys to a certain degree that broke the glass ceiling. Yeah, but you know what? They don't know what they meant to us. I will never, ever forget the first time I walked into, was it Great Titchfield Street, I think? Sony Records? Yep, it was on Soho Square. Soho Square. And I've forgotten who I was going to see. I was told to, to wait. But while I'm waiting, out comes this guy from one office, Lincoln Elias. And I just sit there like, who the hell is he? He goes back into his office I ask, I'm like, who's that guy? So, oh, that's Lincoln. Oh, what, well, you don't know Lincoln? I'm like, right, no, 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 no. But then the other door opens. There's like two, two doors down. And I see this other black guy sitting <laughs> there. And I'm like, yo, what's going on around here? Who's this guy? And that was Dej Mahoney. And I remember the impression that it left on me. Because, number one, Dej was the first black business affairs person I'd, I'd ever come across within the major industry as we, as we know it. And then realising that Lincoln was the guy behind all these huge acts, but I'd never put two and two together that, that Lincoln could even possibly be black, but he was. And the other guy in the Holy Trinity, which we shouldn't forget, was Matt Ross, because Matt Ross was there at the same time. And then also, we forgot Gordy as well, who worked in um, Artist Liaison. But going back to Matt, but in particular to Dage and to Lincoln, one of the things that we talk about is a real honesty about the business and how it's changed over the years. I don't know how you felt, because obviously you were yet to work at a major label. 
But one of the things I realised pretty early on, seeing what was going on, was that there was clearly a level that, as a black man, I was not going to be able to reach. That kind of opportunity was not going to be afforded to me because Lincoln was a rarity. I mean, I don't know how you felt when you walked into Christmas years later on. I didn't think of it in the beginning, but the, the more we had success, the more it would, uh, it would spark something in your brain. You would ask questions, but you'd, you'd only ask it to yourself because no one else within the, within the system would, re- would really understand where you're coming from. Um, and don't get me wrong, I had great support within Chrysalis. You know, Pete Edge was absolutely fantastic and a, another important person um, in my story, for sure. You know, after Erskine, it was him who saw something in me from, you know, from all the club promotion that we were doing, but it was a bit more because I'm kind of tipping them off on, on tunes too. So I had great support from, from him and uh, Doug Darcy, as his name, who was, I suppose, the chair, chairman at the time, running operations. And they, they let me do, do my thing. I mean, I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I was a cocky kid. I was really cocky. I got away with a lot, but every now and then I'd get a knock. But that knock also let you know that, hmm, you know what? I ain't going any further than, than this. I'd been promoted from club promotions to, to A&R, but would I ever be running this label? Nah. It just, because you, you, you just never felt it. Did we have the, the talent to do it? Hell Yes. Were we set up to do it? No. That was very apparent to me very, very early on. I'm sure it wasn't a a deliberate policy. It was just that we weren't considered to be able enough to be in that kind of position. It's heartwarming to see the changes that have been made over the years. Let's skip to the mid-80s. And you were still at Chrysalis. I'd left Ireland and I was running my own little promo company out of the offices of um, 19 Management, the great Simon Fuller with Chris Morrison, who were incredible sports of Simon. So I was running my little promo company, having some having big hits with big acts. You were working at Chrysalis. I remember you got offered a job at Polydor, but we won't go down that road. We'll leave that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We've got to talk about that one. And I'll tell you why we've got to talk about that one. It was a great feeling being headhunted by other companies. Awesome. I then say, yes, and I get offered this package. But the weird thing was, it felt like I'd get a call every day. And if, if the package had 20 things, every time I got a phone call, three of those things would go. To the point where it felt like there was only like two things left in this so-called package. And I was like, you know what? Nah, that's not working. So they thought I was going to start on a particular day. Um, I think they'd even hired an assistant for me. They'd put a name plaque (laughs) on the the door of my my new office. But when that day came, I didn't move an inch. Yeah, I know that. And you know how I know that? Because <laughs> they rang me and said, do you know where Danny is? <laughs> that was John Preston. Yeah, but he's meant to be starting here today. I was like, right, okay. I'll do this one <laughs> later on. I remember that very, very well. But that set you off on a completely different 
career path and brought us even closer together because at that point we decided you're going to really take on the musical side of your career well you know what i'll be honest with you i didn't sit there thinking about it just certain things happened i had become like what a remixer of choice at, at the time um so i was doing a lot of remixes at a time when you know it was seen as um a conflict of interest because you know there i am working at at Chrysalis, at Cool Tempo, but I'm doing mixes for Pete Tong or or for doing something for yourself at, at Ireland. So the, again, the ceiling of what you could do then it wasn't great, and the, what what you could charge was was limited because of that kind of conflict of interest. But it was Pete Tong who gave me a mix on Salt and Pepper. And I can't remember which which song. Um, I I did one. Tim did Tim did another. Did did another. Um, but it was while while doing that that I take a break from the studio, and my mate Gary Hazeman was on me. You got to come and check out this club, and I do, and I can't believe what I I've seen. But I come back to the studio, and I'm ch- and I'm trying to explain. To the, to the guys in the studio, this is what I've just seen. They're looking at me like I'm mad. And the only way that I could, dis, you know, get it across, that this is what I heard and this is what people are dancing to, was to, you know what, let me just knock something up, just to give you an idea of what's, go, of what's going on. What I, what I ended up doing was then put on, you know, on the master dat, which got sent to Pete Tong, and then the rest is history. We need to shout out the title of the track. We call it Acid, which was Gary's saying, which had kind of caught on in the club. So when you went down to the club, instead of people saying hello to you, they would come up to you and be going, Acid, in your face. (laughs) And as much as as it was the most weirdest thing to experience, an hour in, when the music is going off and you it, it, you came out, it's like, oh my god, that's something else. Did you did we know that it was going to do what it what it did uh, um, commercially? No, of course, course not. But it was never actually in, intended. It was it was literally just to to show the guys in the studio this is another form of music that's that's going on, and one thing led led to another. You know, and yes, I'd all, all along the way I'd always been dabbling in making in making music, but it wasn't really my thing to be an artist at all. It never was. I I actually it was more the idea of being a, a producer that was that was my thing. You know, I'm that I'm that guy buying my records. I'm looking at all the credits, but you know, I gladly fell fell into it. And that experience, the good, the bad, the ugly of it, has held me in great stead. Um, for what I've gone on to do. One of the biggest learning experiences I had was I'd cut a song that I was actually, I'd done the demo vocal um, and I'd given it to a couple of people. Um, Norman Jay was was one. um, And it was destined to be like, you know, just like a big club tune, end of story. But it was Simon who is on my case, you see this tune, I believe that if you put 
um, a different vocal on it, I think it's a it could be a, a you know a pop smash, and I'm and I'm like yeah right whatever. And remember, as I said, I was I was the cocky one, so I thought I knew it all, right? But he you know a fellow Torian, he keeps on, on and on and on at me. Every conversation, it's like it comes up to the point where I'm like you know what, all right then you know I'm gonna let's let's organize something and uh, let's go try this idea out. Behind it all, he had come across Kathy Dennis, and he was convinced that her voice on that same song, it was it'd be out of here. So I'm like, tell tell her to come to the studio and let's try this thing out. Now I'm gonna be totally honest here. I wasn't telling him to tell her to come to the studio to like come, let's go cut a hit. I just wanted to prove him wrong. Me, I'm the <laughs> cocky guy, right? I think I know it all. <laughs> so, yeah, you tell her to come down and we'll do it just so you can see that, yeah, what, what a rubbish idea that was. Well, I'm the one who was wrong because from the moment she sang the first line of the tune, I start laughing uncontrollably at the realisation. I could hear it straight away. She hadn't even got to the chorus or not, but it was just like, oh, damn. In fact, I'm sure I used other words, but, and she stopped singing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Because she thought I was laughing at her. Imagine the first time you're meeting someone, they go to sing and you're sitting there laughing your head off. And I say to her, no, 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 no. It sounds amazing. You need to continue. And I explained, I explained myself on why I was, I was laughing and so once she got that, she just did, did her vocal. Um, the song was called Come On And Get My Love. And lo and behold, it went top, I think it was top 15 in the UK for weeks on end. It's like it would, it would just stay, it just stayed there forever. It then went on and went, became top 10 in America. Great lesson. Yeah, and DMOB became internationally successful. Whilst you were having your success with DMOB, I was over at MCA Records running club promotions and A&R and over there. And as always, I've got, I had to bring my boys in to work on the records that I was working on. So whilst I was looking after the big US acts like Eric B and Rakeem and Bobby Brown guy and Jodeci and all those acts, I was also A&Ring some of the UK repertoire, well, signing UK repertoire as well. And I signed Danny Minogue, Kylie's sister, and that was something that you worked on, and we had some great success on that together. I mentioned MCA for a number of reasons. I mean, but one of them is we talk about people that have been important in our lives and, and mentors that have helped us. One person I know I hold very dear, another guy that you have complete respect for in the same way, was my MD at the time, Tony Powell. Oh, hell yes. You should tell the story why, and I can kind of embellish as, as, as we go, because I think it's important. What did he mean and what did he do for you? I think it was really interesting because Tony was, and still is, and it one of the first people. I mean, he, he had a, a, a policy where his door was always open, which was unique in itself. If you walk past, you know, he'd shout for you and come in and sit down and you talk. But he talks to you as an equal. And he always thought there was the opportunity to go further. He always encouraged he loved black music. He loved black people. And it wasn't a thing where he felt he was doing it because he had to. It was a genuine love and a genuine desire to help. 
that meant a whole lot to me. I mean, he was a really important person in my development. There's no question about that. I learned an awful lot from Tony just about how you run a business, how you get the right people in the right places to make things happen. But more importantly, how to treat people. You used to be in and out of there all the time. I had an open door for you and Tim Blacksmith and her other friend, Carlton. And as black men walking in, I don't think that any of us had ever felt as We've been treated as equals in the same way until we've met something. Yeah, that, maybe that's not quite the right phrase. But he really treated you as an equal. It was someone you could sit down and break bread with, and, and he respected you completely. He did. And we have to also name a couple of others. Um, I think Roger Ames was another person that totally made you feel at home. You know, um, how it made you feel to walk into a building where you, where you felt comfortable, where someone's talking to you on a level, not talking down to you like you don't know, wanting to know, know your mind and talking about all forms of, of, of life, not just about the music industry. When you've got the chairman of the company showing their appreciation for, for whatever you had done, it meant the world. Before we get back into talking about our respective careers, one of the things that we always ask is, again, as you know, is what it was like and some of the challenges you faced as a minority in the business when you were first running around in the major record company. Were there any kind of barriers, pushbacks that you felt that you faced when you were working in, in, in a major label? We had signed EPMD and had huge success with them. But on the, on the album, they had done a version of I Shot the Sheriff, which was a good tune, but I didn't see it as a, as a hit in an in A&R meeting. And I'm being told to put the record out because everyone else in the room thought that this was a, a smash. And one of those people in the room was, was Chris Hill, who told me I was an idiot. I looked at him. I was like, what? No, I'm actually giving you my honest opinion on this tune it's a good it's a good tune but it's not a, it's not the hit that you guys think it is because you know because it's a popular cover doesn't mean that it's a it's a hit but when he would then called me an idiot in front of everyone else and not one person like said no no you yeah you're you know and he used some he used a, a couple of other um expletives along the way as you know Chris can when he's ready. I've really felt, yeah, in fact, I can't even explain the feeling at the time, but it was just like, nah, no one should, no one should talk to you like that. And people should respect your thought process. He clearly didn't. And had the support of the hierarchy in the building to talk, to talk to me like that and, I was just like, nah. I don't, and in fact, I don't think I ever spoke to Chris Hill with much respect after that moment. And I put, I put, him, to, I, I put him to the task. I said, you know what? We're not going to put it out. But if you believe in that, in that song so much, you put it out on your label, en Enzyme, to which they did. And, and it failed. How much do you think that was down to just the musical difference or you as the black A&R guy in the room? It felt like you're the young black kid in the room, but you ain't going to come and tell me what's what I'm telling you. That's what it felt like. Whether that was the intention or not, but that's what it felt like to me. 
it had no res- it was like there was no respect being shown for for my thought process. This is like nah, nah. You listen to what I'm saying. You're an idiot. Outside of that personal barb and that that insult to you, what did it make you feel about the business in general? Because I have a story that's relatively similar. It made me look at the business very differently. You know, I, I, and I don't think I realised how much that that moment had got to me. And I think it was like weeks, months after that, it really started to come to the fore. It, it created a space for itself in my brain. And slowly but surely, it was coming to the fore. And as I said, you know, I had great support. I'd been protected. I had great... Great friends within there. A similar kind of story, but I remember being at MCA and, I, and I, we were in an A&R meeting. We just had a massive hit with Adamski. Big up Paul Doggett, gone but not forgotten. And on the Adamski record was an amazing young singer called Seal. And everybody was trying to sign Seal. And it was a time before you signed a feature singer. He was just on the tune. But the tune was so big that everybody was trying to sign him. It was between us and ZTT. And this thing was going backwards and forwards. Couldn't seem to get over the line. And I remember we were desperate, of course, to sign it. I remember sitting in, the, in, in an A&R meeting and, we were t- and, and as you know, you go through a list of acts that you get, you're going to play and you play those tracks. Then you talk about the acts that are currently you either got off, offers out on or you're trying to do deals on. And we got to seal and yeah, we tried to sign, but it's really difficult. We, we can't really get to talk to him. It's just a bit tough. And I remember the business affairs guy looking at me and going, Adrian, you go and talk to him. You're black. You're black. He's black. He'll understand you. Even the people in the room were like, they couldn't believe it. And at that point, I generally felt any last hope I had of ever thinking that I was ever going to be able to get to a certain point in the business. That was the realisation that it was never going to happen because that's how people thought. You know, even all these years later, it's very much like your story, Chris Hill. It's one of those stories that I still kind of look back on and think, yeah, that was, that was probably a real watershed moment. That was the moment where I thought, I love doing what I'm doing in this company and it's great, but I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to be able to really realise the ambitions that I want to because you have people of a mindset like that who are clearly going to block you at, at, at any given time. I remember at the end of 93, when there were changes at MCA, I left after having a lot of success. And I, you know, I remember talking to our old friend, Mark Lesnar, the other day. And Mark was going, you know what? Back then, you should have been given a great, a greater opportunity. But everyone knew that you wouldn't be because of the colour of your skin. And that was when I, when I went off and worked with our other good friend, Trenton Harrison, at his management company, looking after Goldie and Groove. And that was an incredible time of my life. Seat of the pants time, but it was great fun. <laughs> One thing I like to, I want to big up on with you, because you know, you know I love bigging you up. Stop it now. Is your remixing, because you did something that was absolutely incredible, which is you created something that is now a staple in dance music that had never been heard before, when you did probably one of the best remixes of all time, which is your Chaka Khan, I'm Every Woman mix. And it was the first remix that had ever had the rolling snare drum in it. Yep. And now it's everywhere. How does that make you feel? when you kind of listen back to it and think, I'm responsible for that. It makes me remember the, the moment because it's kind of like a, uh, how, it, how it happened was like a happy accident um, between myself and the great Marius de Vries, who 
was uh, was programming and, and the main musician for me at the at the time. And I was I was doing some drum programming, and obviously I was doing a snare roll. And something happens in the in the ether, in the MIDI. There's a connection between my drum machine and him programming this sound. And all of a sudden, we hear it. And there's this, it's just there's this like euphoric moment in the room. What the hell was that? And we stop. It's like, no, 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 no. What was that? How did that happen? And Marius being Marius, being the, the boffin that he is, literally spends two, two hours, maybe even more, working out how it happened and then finds the, the, the answer and the rest is history. And we, we put it in the tune two or three times. I remember the moment viv- vividly. There's an old studio in, just off the Holloway Road, which isn't there anymore. I forgot the name of it. There was another, uh, an engineer called Jeremy, this Australian guy who was just un- unbelievable, um, who loved reggae. So his whole vibe in mixing a tune was like he's, he's, he's making a dub. <laughs> so... It had, it had, we just had all the, all the elements were right. The monitoring was right. Everything about this spot was right. So when this thing happened, it was just like, oh, Ross. <laughs> it is a brilliant piece of work. This podcast is going to be a two-parter, so we can't fit all the great stories in one go. So, Danny, post your recording career, the band, the remix and the production, what was your next move? Because of you, I was doing a lot of stuff with, with Simon. I was kind of like... I suppose, in a in a funny way, his uh, his musical ear for a, for a bit, but then the the real the real moment was along the way. I'd met I'd met Tim. Tim had come to see me um, when he he was an artist, and we we hit off a a friendship like literally in, instantly. Um, I'd asked him, I asked him a question. He gave me an amazing answer. And that was, that was the friendship kind of sealed right, right there and right there. And then because he was, he was also a musician producer. Um, and we, we realized there was a, 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 like, a, like a mutual love of, of certain areas of music. We just, and that we were so similar as, as people, uh, our backgrounds is, were, were similar. Uh, we, you could describe our homes, and it's like you're describing the same place. You describe uh, our parents, it's like they're the same people. Um, how we got treated as, as kids, it was the same. There was just a, a, a bond. Um, so he'd be, the, he'd, be the, he'd be the one person on a musical level that I would I want to know what he thinks. You know, and I would listen. If Tim said, mm, you've got to think about that one, you know, he'd come to the studio, you'd hear what I'm doing, he'd make a comment, I'm actually listening. Whereas, you know, before someone else would come, ah, yeah, we're at whatever. There was this mutual respect and the friendship developed. And it, in a conversation, it was like we both knew we wanted to go do something, but we'd have to find the right thing. And there was just like a loose conversation of... Uh, you know, one day we'll find something that we both can put 
our experience into and 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 manage you know because we you know we'd had great managers you know we'd both learnt i'd learnt a hell of a lot from yourself I'd, I'd, from from the simon fullers of this world and he'd he'd done the same with uh dave Durrell, you know but there was something there was something missing we felt that for people like ourselves who were coming through we could impart our knowledge and the symmetry of just being you know when your father tells you something you're listening because it's your father to be able to help someone like ourselves who's come i came out of stonebridge tim came out of brixton but there were more of us if we can help them then we're we're on a we're onto something you know and it was just just the giving back alone was what we were talking about we weren't talking about anything else we weren't talking about becoming millionaires and all the rest of that that's just that's not our thing but it was just about giving back you know and and hopefully set, setting people on their on their journey you know um and then tim through his endeavors comes across um the stargate guys who one of them was working at warner's i think in sweden who called tim to do a remix tim goes over takes on the job but doesn't finish and that's when tor from stargate says oh, actually i think we can go go to my mate's studio and finish up for you can finish it off there and while you're there you should listen to to what they're doing um and I think they're looking for for for, mani- for management, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes over there, finishes his mix, and the rest is history. He gets played what they were doing. I then get a call. Um, he plays a song down the, down the phone. I say, where the hell are you? He says, I'm in Norway. And I think at that time, I mean, my geography is so bad, I only, I only knew Oslo. <laughs> So he says Trondheim, and I'm like Trondheim. Where the hell is where the hell is that? <laughs> and and uh, but he plays the tune, and it was like I was blown away. I was like, whoa, what is that? And he tells me, and and I I remember making a really ignorant comment actually, because um, it was like a blue-eyed soul vocal on this R&B tune, and but because I'd never heard of anything like that coming out of Norway, my comment was, what? Do they even make music in Norway? <laughs> it was that cold, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but the rest is history. He came back. I hear the rest of the project and I'm like, yo, I'm in. You know, so we, we both went back to, to Trondheim. That was my first time um, in, in Norway. Um, it was a great experience, great meeting the guys and the setup that they had, and we put it to them that we'd like to um, we'd like to manage what they're doing, and and the, and that was twenty two yeah twenty two years ago yeah and I can remember Tim on the hustle with Stargate because post my time working with Trenton over at NUR and managing Goldie I got offered a job at Mushroom Records running their black music division. I remember Tim walking in going, I've got these guys, they're incredible. Stargate, you, you know, really need to get them some work. And I was like, okay, listen, Tim, it's you. Come, let's get them on a mix. They did one of the early mixes. That, that was the, around the time they were also doing Mystique and other bits and pieces. But 
as we come to close this episode, I mean, this is probably for me the best time for me to kind of, you know, to end my story because at the end of my time at Mushroom, which wasn't that successful, enjoyed working there, but it just had, had a couple of hits, just didn't feel right. And I got to the end of, um, end of my contract. And there were two things that, that really shaped me going into it. When I joined the business, I'd always said that I wanted to be out of it by the time I was 40. I always remember seeing there was a particular guy that I had a deep admiration for who'd been incredibly successful, but had tried to hold on against all the odds about being in and around the business. And I didn't want to be that guy. I had my three sons. They were coming up to teenagers. I'd been traveling a lot. And I just wanted to be home a bit more to kind of be around them and to be just to kind of guide them through the, through the terrible teens. But I also remember as when I was leaving, Corder Marshall, who is an incredible A&R guy and a great person, he sat me down and he said, you know what, one day I think you're going to be a great manager. I looked and I thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? You don't even, you don't, how would you know that? You're chatting rubbish. And at that point, yeah, I walked out and I was like, listen, I'm done. Yeah, I'm going on my own terms and I'm done. January 2005, you're managing Stargate. You're making great shakes. I'm out of the business. That's the end of part one. And there's a lot more to come. Danny? Thank you very, very much. There's a lot more to talk about, not just about our journeys, but about our things about the business, the industry, the things that we've seen, the things that we hope for, and what we still want to do. So as always, my brother, I'm looking forward to picking it up in part two. 100%. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Danny for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to my good friend Danny Deep, a partner and true pioneer, to Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and to Evie, Ren, David, and the team at WX. You'll soon be able to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode where we continue the conversation with Danny about our time in the music business, where we find ourselves now, and talk about our hopes for the future. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time. <laughs>